Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. Okay. And welcome back to another episode of the Swan Dingo File. Today I have with me Megan Trapp, fellow veteran. She's also an author, and she's got a story to tell you all today. So welcome on, Megan. I know you're busy. I know you have to reschedule due to dental. My worst fear is dental. I swear to God, I will not go to the dentist for anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for. I'm super excited and honored to be here. So. Appreciate you having me on. <laughs> I appreciate you taking time out of your day and uh, rescheduling with me. Um, but today we're going to talk about why you joined uh, the Air Force. You know, not the best branch, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> what you did while you're in, your transition out, and uh, everything you're doing now today to uh, improve your life and also help other veterans. Sorry, so if you can begin, <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like I said, thank you for, for having me on. I'm super honored and, you know, appreciative, humble, grateful, all those things. I love, you know, not only working with other veterans and helping them out, but just getting my story out there because I'm, I, my, my kind of like motto, I guess, if you want to say is even if my story helps one person or impacts one person or makes a difference and that's all that, you know, it needs to. Um, so yeah, I, I actually joined the Air Force at a much later age. I joined at 27 and a half, um, cause I was a firefighter for about three years before I joined. And being, I was from Colorado, so that's where I was at the time. And I, it really actually took me a little bit longer to kind of even figure that out, cause I was, I was really, you know, I did well, like I sold cars and I sold motorcycles and I, I just kind of like tried a little bit of everything here and there at a young age and I didn't, it just didn't click. And so I would, I'd get hired. I had no problem. You know, I was always a hard worker, but then I'd start a job and I'd get super bored. I'm like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> so I think it was about 24-ish, 24 and a half. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And then that's how I, I just decided one day I was going to be a firefighter. And it just really, it's like everything lined up and clicked and it made sense. And about three years into it, um, my, my ex-boyfriend at the time, who had been a cadet at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, he kind of randomly popped back in and was like, Hey, you should join the Air Force. And I don't, I don't honestly, it's, I don't really have like a cool story of why I joined because I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Um, just want to get out of town? Like, just yeah, want to get out of well, town or? Yeah, I think a little bit of everything. You know, I, I was, like I said, it's, it's hard to get into firefighting anyway, especially as a female at that time. Um, in Colorado, like the big, I really wanted to be done with firefighter and the testing process is, back then even was insane. They only did it every couple of years, like every two years, I believe. And the testing was really, really hard. And you're testing against like 3000 applicants. Um, and I had a, t a bunch of certs, but I did not have, you know, a ton of experience yet. So I got on with my first apartment um, in a town called Franktown. It's, it's much bigger now, but it's like halfway between Denver and Castle Rock, Colorado. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was on with them. And, and then I thought after talking to, my ex, I'm like, you know, wh what do I have to leave? Like, maybe it, it would be great to join the Air Force. I mean, I could, and I had all these goals, like travel, you know, get my degree, do all these cool things. And that's exactly what I did. So I went and signed up and um, being older, I was like, 
if you guys don't give me this job, <laughs> I'm not going to join. <laughs> and so, yeah, I got firefighter. I put in for Italy. That was my first pick was Aviano Air Base Italy. And that's what I got. So I got orders to Italy and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> that, that's actually funny. You mentioned Aviano Air Base because uh, on my way to I, well, Kuwait. Oh, Kuwait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on my way to Kuwait, uh, we stopped in Aviano. They said that we had a, a plane break uh, malfunction. <laughs> I'm 18 years old, no idea about the real world yet, really, about right. to go to Iraq, and, of course, Italy at 18, you can drink. Yep. And what did I do that night as a young 18-year-old, pretty much by myself? I got drunk. So, yeah. But yeah. We actually met a bunch of Air Force uh, people, and they started buying us drinks, and they were actually pretty cool over there. I actually enjoyed my short amount of time, only 24 hours there, but... It was actually very pretty there. At least I thought. Oh, it's it honestly like I see myself retiring in here. It was I didn't want to leave Italy after my two years were up. I'm like I don't want to go back to this. I mean, it was such an amazing experience. I mean, there's times that you know it's hard. You got to put up where we were a, a NATO base, right? So we had a ton of we were constantly doing exercises, ORE like Operation um uh exercises to prepare because we were a NATO base, right? But that kind of sucked. But uh really other than that, I mean, it was it's like we didn't technically have a leave area. So as a firefighter, we worked twenty four on, twenty four off. Me and the guys, me and my shift, we would go everywhere on our days off. I mean we were, I had my car shipped over there. I was in Germany, all over Italy, France, Switzerland. I mean, I've been to so many countries, just and the same thing with the, you could hop on a train and go pretty much anywhere with a matter of hours. Wow. You know, it was, it was insane. And I learned to speak the language, the food. Don't even get me started on the food. The food. <laughs> it's like you come back to the States. It's like, what is, what is this crap? <laughs> so. I, and the beer. I don't know if you drank beer or not or did, but yeah, the beer over there was a lot better. Oh, yeah. Uh, every, it's just, yeah. It's it's such an an eye opening experience, you know. And and of course you had airmen that lived in the dorms that would sit there and be like, "This sucks," and they just you know play video games. And I'm like, "What are you doing? People spend thousands of dollars to travel to you, <laughs> and you're getting paid good money because back then that was you know the euro was what two to one ratio. So your cola, your my cola was like nine hundred dollars a month, mm-hmm. off cost of of living. Allowance, a cost of overseas living allowance. So I was getting, you were getting all that extra money because the dollar was not equal to the euro at the time. And it was, the euro was, you know, worth way more than the dollar. So I was like, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that, you know, the, uh, most of the younger privates and everything. So I was in South Korea for a little while and, uh, mm-hmm. for a year. And I had a blast in South Korea, even though we're closer to the DMZ. I still had a blast. I still went out, you know, saw a bunch of stuff, got to meet a bunch of different people. Picked up a little bit of language, but I've lost all that by now. And people are sitting there talking crap about Korea. It's like, it's not that bad. Yeah, no, we go to the field a lot. It. I don't get it. It's like you're overseas. Like people do not get this experience all the time. And exactly. It's like, man, nope. take advantage well, of it. <laughs> well, that's, that's their fault. And they can, that's probably why they didn't last very long in the military and they hated it so much, but I liked it. So, so, uh, you're a firefighter. I'm off. <laughs> oh no, you're good. Um, so you were a firefighter for the whole what was it ten years you did? Um, so I was fire and I was active duty and then I came. So I was Aviano Air Base Italy and then I guess that was my payoff for being in Italy. My first duty station, I got stationed in 
Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. <laughs> Something like, in, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was awful. It was a culture shock. I'm from Colorado. So going to South Carolina and this is like the armpit of America. <laughs> you're, you're For anybody listening from South Carolina. Sorry. Disregard, <laughs> she just doesn't understand. They'll, they'll agree with me. If you say Sumter, they're like, Oh my gosh. And it was weird because it's not a big town, but it's, there's a lot of issues. I mean, the guys were like, Hey, don't ever go to Walmart by yourself after eight o'clock at night. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, there's a lot of crime. There was, a lot of issues that the Air Force tries to keep on the down low and not tell people about. And it was, it was just a, a really weird area because you'd be in one section of Sumter and you'd be driving and it'd be like these beautiful, I'm guessing like retired military or people with money. And then you'd be in like the trailer park and then you'd be on like the wrong side of the track somewhere. <laughs> like, well, I'm going to get shot, you know? <laughs> like, little, little mixture of every single culture out there. It was, it was pretty, people always joke about Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Fort Bragg is. They're like, oh, Fayetteville. I'm like, no, Sumter's way worse, way worse than Fayetteville. Way I would have never, I would have never thought being next to an Air Force base that it would actually be worse. I never would have thought that. Well, I'm like, okay, it, it was a, a much older base, which they, they, at the time when I got there, cause I got there August of 2000, end of August, 2011. So they had just built like brand new dorms and they were definitely doing a lot of, you know, Air Force life, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. outside of it, I'm like, they must have had this space forever because I'm guessing they just picked it. There's nothing there. Um, the good thing about it is you're only, I was about an hour and 20, 30 minutes from, um, from Charleston, which Charleston's really cool and then Myrtle Beach and everything. But I had no, no desire to, to hang out in Sumter. It was just, it was really tough. And I had come from, being the only female in my fire department in Italy, right? And um going to which that was norm anyway. I mean I went to to Shaw and that was the same thing. They hadn't had a female I think in like seven years. So it was this again all over this huge deal like, oh we're getting a female firefighter and I was like, you know, give me a break. <laughs> and when I first got there, yeah, I started work early September because they gave me that leeway to, you know, house hunt and stuff. And then October of 2000, like right, a month after I got there, I found out that I had one firefighter of the year coming from Italy. And I didn't even know that because it's a peer, not your peers put the award, like they put your name in for the award. And so I wasn't even, I had no idea that my name was even in the mix. And all of a sudden, you know, and if any, anybody knows anything about fire department, same thing in most military units, but especially in fire department, we live to like, you know, play jokes on each other and, and give each other crap. I mean, we live for that stuff. It's kind of like the, it's the norm of the firehouse. And um, one of my buddies from Italy, one of the firefighters, the Italian firefighters, he messaged me on Facebook and he's like, Hey, Megan, congratulations on firefighter of the year. And I'm like, Oh, hilarious. Ha ha. Funny joke. His name is Fabrizio. I was like, Oh, you're, you're real funny, Fabrizio. And he was like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, totally thought he was joking. I'm like, that's not even funny to joke about, man. And, and he was like, I'm serious. And just, he kept trying to convince me. And I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> then like five minutes later, I get a message on Facebook from my, my old fire chief's wife. And she was like, oh, Megan, congrats. <laughs> Winning firefighter of the year. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess he was serious. Cause if it's coming from the chief's wife, it's for real, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's, I was, that's, I was, that's cool. Yeah. That's I was nice. Away. I was like, 
what? Um, because I was, again, the only female. And, you know, there were some people that really gave me a hard time. Constantly. That was a huge honor. That was just, I was blown away to have that award. Um, I mean, I was, I was like, wow, all the hard work that I did, everything that I dedicated into my job. And a lot of it was because I was very passionate. I absolutely loved what I did. So going from all of that, I had just really got burnt out of Shaw um, by the culture there. And just, I didn't want to leave the military and I didn't um, want to leave the fire department, but I was just, I was super burnt out. And so I was really on the fence. I'm like, okay, my four-year contract's pretty much almost up. And I had to do the meet with my first sergeant and my commander. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just done. I, I don't want to leave the military completely, but I'm good. I'm going to go re-enlist in the guard. And they were like, what? You know, they were, <laughs> they were like, you're going to be testing for staff sergeants and you're going to be an NCO. What are you doing? You know, just go. They're like, we need good people like you. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, these guys are exhausting. It doesn't matter how hard I work, what I say, what I do. Because there was still, like I said, unfortunately, the guys that would just give me so much grief and, and constantly oh you get special treatment because you're a woman I'm like I have to work twice as hard to prove myself in the fire department because I'm the only woman and yet it shouldn't be that way but it's just kind of the nature of the beast still so I was like you know what I think I'm good and I re-enlisted in North Carolina I went with the guard they didn't have any firefighter positions open at the time so I Coming from active duty, they would have had to take me, but I would have just been sitting there kind of hanging out, waiting to get a slot, which means I wouldn't have been able to deploy. I wouldn't have been able to go TDY and do any, like, temporary stuff. I wouldn't have been able to, like, full-on really be in a position because the guard, the way that the guard works, they have to have, like, a slot for that position, and they go a rank up, right? So I was – I had already tested for staff sergeant, for, so I was already going to get – you know, I was putting on staff, like, right away. I was an E4. And um, I was really bummed because I was like, what? <laughs> so luckily I had a really great recruiter and he had known me. He'd been talking to me for a while through the whole process of transitioning from, I went um, Palace Chase, which is straight from like no separation. So straight from active duty into the guard. And that's when he introduced me to AirVac, Air Medical Evacuation Technician. And of course I was like, what the heck is that? I've never even heard it. He had me go meet with the commander and a couple of the people from the unit. And I instantly was like, this is awesome. You're a flyer, you fly on C-130s, you, as a guard unit, you do a, some awesome stateside, you know, humanitarian stuff, plus state deployments, which are any, any natural disaster, and then your federal stuff. So I cross-trained into that, and, and the training, I mean, the certification process for that alone, like my schools, was a whole nother year of training just to get certified, because you have to go to Fort Sam Houston for your five and a half months. Uh, we go with, it's actually a, the Air Force took over the program when they did the joint base with Fort Sam. Um, so it's run by the Air Force, but it's a Navy corpsman and Air, Air, Air Force medical technician program together. So all the corpsmen, I went through with corpsmen and with Air Force medics. And it was an awesome experience because then I got to meet just a ton of, you know, Navy corpsmen and kind of learn more about the Navy. Um, and then you go on to like your you know, phase two and phase when you're doing all these clinicals. So I did clinicals at SAMC and I was doing ER rotations and um, pretty much every like labor and delivery and oncology. And I mean, it was, it was an awesome experience. And I'd already had 
some good in the field experiences being a firefighter medic, especially civilian before I came military, but I'd never been really in the hospital setting as much. Um, so that was really cool. And I really, I was surprised because I'm at heart, I'm like, I'm a diehard firefighter. <laughs> like, I'm never going to love medical more than air, than fire. And um, I really fell in love with it, fell in love with the job because it's such a cool uh, position. We we have, it's a five person. So like per one patient, we're medevacing a patient out, whether it's downrange from Germany to the States, we're taking a person state from like Andrews Air Force Base to wherever they're stationed at. It's five, it's a five person crew. So you have your two nurses, which are your your officers, and then your three med techs, which are your enlisted. And you work so closely together that you really just get to see that whole thing. And it put me on the path of of wanting to become a flight nurse and, and go the, the officer route. Um, and I was actually halfway through nursing school when everything happened with my assault. And so that was, I think, another just a huge blow to what they knew that I was planning on staying in and retiring. And work, I mean, I, like I said, just full-time school, working my butt off when everything just kind of came crashing down. So that's how I got to to that point. <laughs> so you, you, you briefly mentioned it, and I don't, it's really up to you how much you want to go into it, but you said something about an assault, like. Yeah. Like. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's That's tough. I don't even know it what is. I would say. Um, I, I talk about it a lot. I think. It took me a while to really get to this point because when I came, so it happened on my deployment, I actually got pulled back to fire. Um, I had, I had moved home to Colorado and there's not a guard air vac base, uh, air vac like wing or unit in every single state. They're only in select states. So when I left North Carolina and moved home to Colorado, obviously it was going to be a challenge. It's been done, but it's really hard to like even do quarterly drills with a unit that's halfway across the country. And so the closest guard unit with an air vac wing was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so I was like, cool, I'll just transfer to that that unit. And my guard unit signed off on it from North Carolina, got out there, and I was drilling in Cheyenne. And then um, I took a contract job as a firefighter at the Marshall Islands in 2015, which was a whole other awesome experience. Yeah, I was down there for a year. It was pretty sweet. So I came home. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to, you know, really get into my job and start doing stuff with, with airvac. And, um, they came to me and they're like, you know, my, of course, my primary AFC was fire because that was what I came in as originally, even though I, I held my 4NO, which is a med tech and X 4NO flyer. Um, basically you hear about it, but it's like very rarely does it happen in the Air Force. And it happened to me. They're like, oh, your primary AFC is fire. We're going to pull you back to the fire department, and you're going to deploy to Kuwait. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, I just got home two mm-hmm. months ago. And I guess the way that I am, and also coming from active duty, I was, you know, because I guess a couple, a bunch of other people had basically said, I'm not going. And I was like, you can do that? But not to, I mean, I had great experiences with the guard, but it kind of happens in the guard, right? They're like, yeah, I'm not going to go. It's like, that's your duty. That's literally your job. So I, of course, was not happy, but I'm like, I have to go. I'm not going to say no to these people. Like, I joined the military, and it's my duty. So I went. I got geared up. Mind you, I'd been out of fire for four years. So I was, like, not only was I behind on all the fire stuff because I was, I was so, you know, I was doing 
I was training and all these other things for medical or for med tech. Um, the fire department squadron that we're part of is civil engineering, a CE. So it's like I had to get caught up on all the firefighter stuff that I was like that had lapsed on just like certs and things, plus all the stuff for CE. Like I hadn't gone to Silver Flag, and Silver Flag is like a pre-deployment type thing that CE has to do if you're a part of the CE squadron, which is like Power Pro, HVAC, Struck. Basically, we're like, you know, the, we're like the work workhorse of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. We're the people that like go and get it done, right? Because we're all like the physical hands-on jobs. And we have to be trained to set up a bear base if we're ever forward deployed to set up an actual bear base. And you have to do it every so often. Well, I had done it because I'd been out of the career field. <laughs> so just stuff like that, you know, I was like, okay, I've got four months to literally knock out four years of stuff that have not been done. So it was just like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, it was it was a really stressful. I was like constantly up in Cheyenne, Denver to Cheyenne, 117 miles. I'm like driving, you know, up there, getting getting everything done for this deployment. But I was like, you know what? Okay, it's Kuwait. <laughs> Everyone who knows, like, what's going to happen in Kuwait? It's Kuwait. It's going to be a sweet deployment. I'm going to get paid. I'm going to work out, you know, whatever. Right? <laughs> so that was how, that was my mindset. I was like, awesome. It's not the best, but it's it could be worse. And so I deployed. I left in July of 2016. And literally within gosh, the first two months, everything that could go wrong went wrong. I mean, I tore my rotator cuff. I broke my tailbone. I was sexually and physically assaulted because this this so mind you, I'm a I'm a staff sergeant. Okay. There's a tech sergeant, so he's he's a E6, I was E5, and he's active duty. He's in the same squadron, but not the same job. He was like structures guy, yeah. Well, you know, we we were dating, but it wasn't like serious. And then I find out that he's married, and of course I'm like, uh, hello, that's my career, dude. Not only is it wrong, but mm-hmm. you're jeopardizing my career now because if somebody would have found out, I had no clue. And I could have been held accountable for it. So I was furious. And I ended it. Immediately ended it. I was like, don't ever talk to me again. Boom. This guy flips out. Starts literally chewing out. Because some I had made friends with some of his friends. Because, of course, we all hung out together. Like, at the pool and stuff in the movie theater. And he started just, like, interrogating them every time they would go hang out with me. Just basically he snapped and went completely crazy started stalking me and then when you think like oh how can someone stalk you in a desert in a deployed location that's this big it can happen and he just it was scary I don't get easily intimidated and it got to the point where I literally feared for my life if I came forward while he was still there um because they were on the rotation before me they were getting ready to go home and it was so bad that I waited until he was stateside I had messaged his his old roommate because he was you know they were going home and he knew about the whole thing he knew I was going to come forward and report it but I waited until he left and the whole time while I'm going through this I luckily had a really really good chaplain um, that I met with and he was like 100% supportive he of course was you know constantly like I'm worried about you I'm worried about you but long story short um, it just it snowballed into this. I mean, it took, I was stuck in the deployed location. They wouldn't send me home. So not, not only am I dealing with two major injuries, I'm dealing with the actual, like, you know, the whole assault, like going through unreported or unrestricted case. 
So OSI is investigating it. And they're like, okay, we need you to call him and we need you to confront him. And they were like, and sitting, it was like some crazy John Grisham movie where they're like sitting in the room and like recording the phone call, you know, of me confronting him to get him to admit to what he did. And I'm also the NCOIC of 911 Dispatch Operations Center and Logistics for the entire fire department. So I'm an E5 in an E7 position reporting directly to the fire chief. I had two full-time jobs plant, uh, like combined into one overall job, and it was extremely stressful. And I'm going to school and finishing my last class to get my degree. So it was just like, you know, it, it was tough. Um. And I came home, and the, the investigation was still ongoing, but it was kind of, you know, nearing the, the tail end of it. And I had a really amazing SBC, which is Special Victims Council, that was appointed to me by the Air Force. And this guy's commander, this is also why, the, I don't know if you know the push in Congress, they finally got rid of uh, command-directed investigations, specifically my case. Perfect example of why they got rid of it. It was... OSI put the whole thing together. They said, absolutely, this guy, like, we have all the evidence. We have everything you need to prosecute. They turned it over to his command because he went back to his base, right? He was on rotation for me. At home, his commander took over the investigation and did everything they could to protect him. They refused to charge him. Yeah, they refused to charge him with sexual assault. They only charged him with physical assault and adultery. They then had the nerve to turn back to me and my lawyer and be like, oh, well, what would you like to see as punishment? And I was like, why are you even talking to me at this point? Because you guys haven't even charged him with sexual assault. Like, it blow. you sit here and preach about there's a zero tolerance policy, zero tolerance policy. It is beat into your head from the minute you step foot at any basic training. I don't care what branch you're in. We all know that's like one of the first things. Don't, don't assault someone. Don't touch people don't you know what I mean it's like basic stuff and yet perfect case perfect example of a sexual assault case and they're like oh we're not even gonna charge him we're just gonna and then it was a slap on the wrist it was a demotion which I pushed for but his commander gave him a demotion with a suspension so that he wouldn't get kicked out of the air force so this guy got to write out retirement he was demoted for six months and then got his rank back on after good behavior. Wow, that's yeah. I've heard I've heard of stories I've never been personally seen because you know being Army Combat Arms before they started in, in, integrating females, I'd never been around females in the Army really hardly at all. Right. But I mean, I'd heard of stories, but as I've done this journey, I'm hearing more and more, and I'm following more and more people, and it's just it's unsettling to know that this is even going on at all. Oh yeah. And yeah. our military, the U.S. military, like I would expect this out of you know some third world country, not right the greatest nation in the world. And and the worst part is that that's not even the worst thing. What's insane to me is I still kind of go back and forth, but I would say what happened after all of that to me personally was about 10 times worse than my actual assault because of what my command did to me. My command was the one who derailed my, my career. Mind you, like I brought up, okay, I was firefighter of the year from that deployment, even while dealing with all of that, I was given an air force achievement medal for the work that I did. I came home messed up. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I was, I was a mess, right? Coming, coming, I mean, you know how it is coming home from any deployment is hard. 
but coming home after having to go through all of that, I had to have shoulder surgery and then, you know, dealing with everything else. And then I was ordered to go to mental health. I was ordered to go to therapy every week. I was never on medication. I was like, there was no reason why I should have been treated and judged the way that I was. But then I command the minute they heard PTSD, because of course I had PTSD, they turned around. And I don't know if that's because I, I have so many Army and Marine friends that still serve with PTSD. And I'm like, okay, why is the Air Force so backwards when it comes like they heard the word PTSD and they flipped out they were like oh you need to be med boarded and I'm like excuse me what I'm sorry because again I wasn't on medication I wasn't doing anything that would like make me non-deployable I mean I was busting my butt (laughs) commuting to Cheyenne from Denver like actually on orders because they in the guard is it's a little bit different than active duty I had to they wouldn't even let me finish my orders at Buckley, Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado, which was 26 miles from my house. I was driving 117 to Cheyenne to do work. And then they said, oh, you're a crappy firefighter. You're a crappy NCO. And I'm like, huh. That's Quick little turnaround. <laughs> so 10 years with nothing on my record, and all of a sudden I'm a piece of crap. And I suck as a firefighter and an NCO, and I'm questionable, and I'm emotionally unstable. And it was like. I mean, you talk about a knife in the back from not just my fire chief all the way up to my wing commander. These people were on a mission to get rid of me, and they were pissed because I stood up and I fought, and I fought hard. And I was like, there's no way in hell you are. You're not doing this to me. I'm not just going to stand here and let you derail my life and my career. And, um, I mean, you want to talk about toxic, corrupt leadership and all the wrong you know, you hear, we all hear about it, right? And we see those people kind of here and there. I think active duty, I definitely saw some of it. But because this was a guard unit, these people were so in bed with each other and they've been for years that they, I guarantee you, there's a million other people like me from Wyoming that have had that happen to them um, because it was so easy for them. I was deemed fit for duty by an active duty psychologist at Buckley. And then these people were turning around saying that I was mentally unstable. And their their commander from mental health at Buckley actually called up to my wing in Wyoming, to that guard unit, and they were like, what do you people think you're doing? You're not a mental health provider. You don't get to decide if she's fit for duty. That You're not. And I was like, right? These people are medical. They were the same job that I did. And they were trying to, like, strong arm the entire thing and be like, you have to turn over your entire mental health record. So I'm like, what? Not only is this a sexual assault issue, this is a mental health issue, and it's the policies that you know we talk about again in the military. Oh, our doors open. We have an open door policy. You know, nobody should have their career jeopardized for you know worrying about getting mental health provided to them and going and and seeking treatment. But yet, that's what happened. Um, and it kind of like my my hail mary pass because what had happened is I was actually I had already had my transfer approved to go to another guard unit out in Colorado. And um, I wouldn't have been able to read. The wing commander who had signed my transfer tried to uphold the appeal or the deny the appeal. I was like, nope, we're getting rid of you. And so 
on my way out, I had two weeks left, and I called the Adjutant General of Wyoming, who was the four-star Army General, this old crusty infantry guy. His name was General Reiner, and I called his office up, and I was like, hey, this is Sergeant, Sergeant Trapp. I need to talk to the the general about what's going on. And his secretary was like, what? You know, because she didn't even know who I was or what was happening. And I told her, she said, well, what's this regarding? And I just, I laid it all on her. I'm like, yeah, well, you might want to know what the leadership over at the Wyoming Guard is doing to your people. And because, you know, adjutant general is in charge of the Army and the entire Guard for the Wyoming Military Department. And so I called his office and I told him everything. And, and I wasn't supposed to get a meeting until December. My contract was up November 28th. And all of a sudden, my last day, I am literally out processing in Cheyenne. And I get called in with the adjutant or the um, area defense council who was helping represent me. We get called into the wing commander's office. And I'm like, okay, what's happening now? Are they trying to give me more paperwork? <laughs> so I, go, I go in and sit down and he made me feel that way. He was berating and like very condescending and just, it was appalling. And then he's like, so we're going to go ahead and accept your appeal. And in my head, I'm laughing. Cause I'm like, the general called you and chewed you out, didn't he? He chewed you out thinking, holy crap, what are you people doing to this girl? And he was, I mean, you could tell he was furious. So he, they had to approve my transfer because I was like, awesome. So then last minute, I was like, sweet, I got two weeks left. I'm out of that place. And then I tried to go to the next unit, and they refused to sign my physical and took three months to do it. So my contract ended. I was officially out. And I'm going to this reserves unit in Colorado at that time because the other unit could replace, you know, anyway, long story. But they turned around as their big kind of like screw you moment, and they gave me twos on my mental health and my shoulder. And as a flyer, you can only have one, like your rating. Yeah, no, I get, I get that part. Wow. Yeah. So, they, so they, they made sure. They were like, oh, yeah, they were so angry about it. They were like, hey, screw you. We're done. So you so literally got rail, railroaded then out of, out yep. of the military. and. Yep. And at that point, I was like, I had fought. That was March of 2019, and my contract had ended literally what November 27th of 2018. And I was still holding on to that hope. I'm like, ready to go. Tell my recruiter, yeah, man, just whenever. And he finally calls me up. He's like, finally got your PHA, which is your physical. Got your mm-hmm. PHA. Got your stuff from from the guard unit, Cheyenne. I'm like, these idiots. You know, they jerking us around for months. Finally got it done, and he's like, yeah, I have some really bad news. And told me, and I was like, "You have got to be kidding me! You have," and that was it. I mean, I within a month, I had derailed. Not only, well, they had derailed my career, but I was, it was, it was scary how quickly I kind of unraveled because I was so depressed at that point. Like I said, I was in school full time, going to nursing school, and I had just lost the will. I mean, I had been fighting for so long and so hard. When that call happened, I was like my life is over. I mean, I I didn't get a retirement. I was out. I got nothing. 10 years and I got nothing. And it was like, okay, I can't, I'm no longer serving. I can't come back in because I had already filed for disability from the DOJ at the time looking at it. I don't know why I did that, but I was rated at 60%. And my recruiter's like, there's no Air Force flight dock in the world that will ever sign off on this. And I'm like, dude, it's for PTSD. It's not for anything else. And he was like, once you're out, you're out. Like, you can be in with it in the guard. You just have to wave your, your girl pay, right? And he's like, once you're out. I'm like, that's so stupid. But anyway, so that happened, and it was like, 
I lost the will to do anything. I literally couldn't get out of bed. I would just, I didn't even go to school. I literally just laid in bed with my dog. If it hadn't been for my dog, I think I, I probably for sure would have ended my life. Um, but even at the time, I was totally in denial about it because I'm like, well, I'm not one of those veterans who's like, I don't have my, my, my gun in my mouth, you know, and I haven't like taken pills and I haven't, you know what I mean? Like I was so in denial about my own mental state. I was like, oh, I'm not that, I'm not that bad because I'm not actively planning out how I'm going to, I'm not saying like, I'm going to kill myself, but every single day, I mean, I did not want to live and I just kept thinking like, all right, if I die today, like that would be really great because then I don't have to suffer like this anymore and I don't have to I mean, it was on the ledge and you know, I was right there and that was a matter of like two months with that. Um, and thank goodness I had already started my, my fitness business a couple of years ago, Deadlift Diva. And I had met just, you know, I'd gone to like Tony Robbins events and met like a lot of really amazing entrepreneurs and other people, you know, mostly some were military of course too, but just all these people that I'd gone to like masterminds with and just really connected and networked. And this girl who I knew from one of those events reached out to me and, um, she was like, you I went to this event it was she happened to be in Boulder in Colorado and she's like you need to reach out to this guy (laughs) I was so skeptical I'm like there's nothing that can save me at this point like I'll do it (laughs) in my head I was like yeah okay Uh, so I call I called him I was like what do I have to lose and I called him and I started you know just kind of talking to him he's like hey come up meet me for lunch and we we had lunch in Boulder um up where where CU is Colorado University and he talked to me he was like I absolutely can help you and I know that this is going to change your life and I still was like yeah okay you know and and I started that was May of 2019 that I went to this course and I don't know if you've ever heard of um, NLP which is a lot like you know Tony Robbins and people that are very much in the mindset and personal growth and development and I went to this course and it completely changed my life. I mean, through hypnosis and timeline therapy and all the, the coaching. And I actually did it because I'm like, well, one, of course, all the trauma that I'd been through with my assault and things from previous um, parts of my life. But I had the mindset of like, I need, how am I going to ever survive as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, if I can't even get out of bed? You know, I can't even go on. And that's really how I started my coaching business with Megan Trump Coaching and how I got to where I'm at now because, I mean, when I say I had a huge shift from going to not wanting to leave my bed or my house and just wanting to die every day, um, within six months of taking that course and getting now, I started actually just sharing my um, my story on Facebook, just doing Facebook lives. And that was really scary at first because it was like the first time I'm ever sharing my story publicly in my fault. And I was really nervous, but I thought, you know what, people need to hear this. And it's important because people don't talk about it. People still in this day and age, we're, we're very, you know, it's like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, anything that's uncomfortable, mental health, sexual assault. I mean, people don't want to talk about that stuff because it is, it is hard to talk about and it's painful. And it's, it's also, it, it makes people uncomfortable, right? But I'm like, that's why I share my story because we need to talk about this stuff. It, it it is very uncomfortable to talk about anything to do with the mental side because I know I'm not gonna ask you your age, but I know people my age and older. I mean, there's still that stigma around it, 
Absolutely. And I tell people all the time that come on the show, I'm doing this to help my my mental health because I'm done doing, going through the VA because their mm-hmm. biggest thing is and, and I know they're starting to change a little bit. Yeah. Trying to get more of yeah. a uh, holistic approach a little bit more, more like meditation and stuff like that a little bit more. But when I was going through it, it's just like, here, take, take a bunch of pills. Yeah. Or yeah. you get like, a different medication. Like what? <laughs> or you get a different person constantly. You'll talk to like one person for a few months and you get somebody else. So you're repeating the cycle over and over and over again. It's just like, this isn't helping. So right. it's, that's why I started, one of the reasons I started doing this was to help my mental health to hear stories of other veterans, and not just veterans, anybody, first responders too. I've heard some right. pretty messed up shit so far. And, um, but to see that people can overcome it and improve themselves, either entrepreneur or they seek some sort of, you know, holistic approach to it, you know, just anything that helps them get over it, it's good for other people to hear it because it's, you know, there's no reason that we have so many people committing suicide. There's just no reason for it. We're, I've only been doing this for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And this short amount of time, I've had so many people reach out to me, want to get on the show, talk, expose themselves. And it's like, that is crazy. Like, I never would have thought this. Yeah, no, it is. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it is heartbreaking that, I mean, I don't even know the numbers anymore. I haven't looked at statistics lately. I, I honestly feel and have felt that 22 a day is way under what the actual numbers are. But yeah, I think they I just felt, upped it, actually. I don't remember yeah. what it was, too, but they, and it was quite a bit. Right. I mean, you know, but it is. It's like, and not only that, but then with COVID, then you look at, like, just how, with that crap going on, how hard it's been for people. I mean, hello, we isolated everybody. We took people that we already have enough going on, even with just, you know, trying to function with the normal life, right? And then now you isolate people and, and made them stay home and just, or even the ones that were working were overloaded. And, um, and it's, it's sad. I mean, I felt, yeah, I felt really strongly the urge that, um, I mean, obviously my, my big passion and, uh, for sure is, is veteran and military. And that's why I kind of really target working with SARC programs and SHARP programs and going and sharing my story. Um, but I've, I've really also started to focus on like colleges and high schools and even younger kids because I'm like, kids, I mean, I know when I was a kid, which is a long time ago. <laughs> but I'm not going to ask, okay? I promise you. <laughs> in high school, I mean, nobody talked about consent. Nobody talked about that was like normal. It's like, oh, it's, they're joking. You know, people can, and especially as a girl, there were, I look back, even in my 20s, I look back and it is scary, you know, especially now that I share this stuff and I speak out about it. I'm like, there are so many times when I am so blessed and so grateful that something didn't happen then because there were so many situations. I, I drank too beyond in excess even before I joined the military. And there were so many times I was in situations that it could have just absolutely been a horrific situation. And you don't think about that, especially in your 20s, because you're like, yeah. You know, no, no, we don't. Know. We don't think, <laughs> we don't think about anything. No. And, and so for me, um, I, I really am looking at wanting to expand that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it is, it's super, it's heartbreaking anytime I hear, especially a veteran or a military member, but, 
now it just seems like it's everywhere. And it's, I mean, you think about mental health and sexual assault, they do not have any bias. It can affect anyone at any time and any gender, any race, any age. Right? Yeah, I know, I know you mentioned something about men too. And I know that's kind of the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I guess the unspoken one more of. I know women. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. They, get, they, we always hear about the women. We never hear about men at all. And I, and I don't know, know even statistics behind it because it's not even put out there for anybody to hear. I want to say, um, I think my friend, I have a, a buddy that has, has really, he's such an awesome guy. His name's Perry. Um, he's from the UK and he's got, he's, he and I are in a lot of similar groups and have, he's just doing awesome right now because he's come out and started sharing his own story. His, his grandfather sexually abused him from like very young age. And, um, he's written a book and he has put out statistics of course of men and, and young boys. And it's, it's alarming. I know it's one in every four girls. And I want to say it's one in every six boys. I think are the stats now. Um, I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But um, it is. It's and it's like I said when I started doing my Facebook lives, I that's what pushed me on this path of okay, I need to, I need to be sharing this. Um, and you're absolutely right. I love the fact that you brought up um, talking about this really helps you. Same thing. People are like, well, how you know how could you do that and how how can you you know how do you not get triggered? And a I've done a ton of personal growth yeah. and development. Um, if I was the person I was three, four years ago in that mindset, there's no way because I was so triggered. And that's not to say, I mean, it's not like I have a magic wand and now that I've done this stuff and I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't sit here and I'm like, nothing bothers me. And you know, my PTSD is non-existent. No, it's, but you work at it every single day. It's like going to the gym, you know, you don't just go one time and then you're like, sweet, I have a six pack and I'm totally ripped. You know, like, Hey, it could it could happen one day. I, I'm I'm maybe 38, but I'm gonna get to the gym again in a month or two, and I'll have a six pack in a day. Just <laughs> but it's it's you know it's consistency. It's mm-hmm. constantly working at it, and you're gonna have days. I mean, that's what I said. Like I still there's days I have off days. I'm I'll go back to that place, not ever to the place of you know being in that just dark, dark, not ever seeing the light and, and not wanting to come out. But there's days when, yeah, I do feel the weight of what I've been through. And I look back and um, it is hard because I didn't get to choose to leave my career and to leave what, I, I mean, I loved what I did, loved it. If somebody came to me and was like, hey, you know, we want to give you, you can go back in. I'd be like, okay, I'm in. Where do I sign? And people are like, are you insane? You know what? Yeah, maybe I am, but <laughs> I well, love it. Even though you went through what you went through, I'm I'm just glad really that the the good still outweighed the severely bad. I mean, oh yeah, I mean, I mean as I said, like I look I look at and that's that's what it takes. It took me. That's why I love what I do as an NLP coach. That's what I'm working on now, building my coaching client um, clientele and helping other people like myself because it teaches you to shift your perspective. It teaches you to look at like okay, I can't control those people, right? But those people. They have to some at some point. They're going to have to own up to that. They're going to have to accept what they did. I can only control myself, and I can own my behavior. Who am I choosing to be? Who am I choosing? What emotions am I choosing? Right? 
Um, and how am I using my story to also help you? There's so many people that have never been able to share their story or stand up and even just tell somebody, right? It's not even, it's not really about like go, going and reporting it, but that's a, fa- a facet of it. But I mean, even just sharing it, there's so many victims out there that have never told anybody what's happened to them. Um, and that is a lot of weight to carry around. Well, even if they don't ever come out and say anything, at least they can hear stories, like you said, yeah. and hopefully and they can, can lean yeah. into them a little yeah. bit and find the perseverance to help them start getting over that hump to become better. So, cause it, unfortunately, yeah, like you said, it does happen a lot more than what we even hear about or think about. Um, yeah. and it's, a, it's a fucking sick world we live in, unfortunately. So there, there is just, you know, and it's now that I have a daughter, I mean, my daughter's nine months old and it's so different. I mean, I'm sure, you know, when you become a parent and now like knowing that's another reason why I'm like, I have to better prepare my daughter, but still even giving her all the tools in the world, there is no safety net. There's no guarantee that nothing will happen to her, but you know, knowing what I know and continuing to work hard, especially within the military and the veteran community of, okay, how do we make this better? This needs to change. And across the board, because I speak for all, you know, all DOD, it's not, I don't do just Air Force, I mean, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Army, every event that I've done and the people that I've been talked, you know, have talked to and been interviewed by and the feedback that is the same is that this culture <laughs> needs to change the oh it doesn't happen or oh yeah. you know i mean we you went to the i'm sure it's the same thing where it's like death by powerpoint I mean, how is that you don't you stop paying okay, attention don't after touch each other inappropriately okay great like, after 30 <laughs> seconds you start, oh i was a nuclear opportunity leader so that was one of the classes <laughs> i gave when i was in south korea and you just see the faces on people and it's just like you lose them at, at 30 seconds and <laughs> and, and my world at that time, I know they started implementing females now. Well, towards the end of my career, there was no females in, yeah. in my unit. So you're sitting there telling a, a group of guys, don't touch, you know, females. And they're all like, <laughs> like, okay, cool. I don't feel right. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's funny. You mentioned you have a, do- a nine month old daughter. I got one daughter out of six kids and her four older brothers, one younger brother. But her four older ones are very protective of her. So yeah. I don't think I have too much to worry about. I'm more worried about, I don't know, I'm more worried about her beating up other kids in her class because she beats up on her 11 year old brother already and <laughs> she thinks she's tough. Right. But yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point too. It's funny because I'm the second of six, right? I have an older brother and three younger sisters and a younger brother, but, um, I was, I was, total brute i mean obviously to be a firefighter right like i yeah i was i was always beating up the boys because i'd get picked on and and i think that that was really hard for me too that made it almost not i don't want to say a double-edged sword that's really not the right word but for me i think that even hit more home when when all this happened because it was humiliating because i am i've never you know what i mean like i've always been a protector of my female friends i going out with the guys i mean they're like my my you ask the guys that I served with and the guys in the, in, on my shift I mean they're literally my brothers you know you call me brother brother and sister because you're like family and they're like dude I I go I choose you over ninety percent of the guys you work with to go into a fire because you I know you're gonna get me out you know so I mean I was 
tough. And so to have that happen, it was like, it was, it was embarrassing. And I think that kind of added to it too. The guys that I was with on the deployment, they didn't know how to handle anything. Some of them knew, some of the really close ones to me knew, but most of them, they didn't quite know the details. They just knew something was going on. And, um, but I think for them, having that from their perspective too, I'm sure if I talked to them about it, it was like, here's this girl that can pretty much, you know, out so she can, she can handle her own. And so they really didn't know how to handle that either. And, and that's also why I like sharing my stories is giving that feedback to a, a really with male dominated career mm-hmm. fields or, or the units that are typically still mostly men, because it, yeah, from their perspective, like, how do you, how do you handle that when it comes, when something does happen like that to one of your sisters or eat? They happen to a guy and he came forward if you ever have the courage to. Um, and, and I get, I related really well with the men that did reach out to me privately after I started doing my Facebook lives when I first shared my story because I felt that same, you know, like that shame of like, I'm supposed to be this badass, you know, and it's humiliating that this happened to me. And how did this happen? Um, and yes, I'm not a man, so I will never know that perspective, but I think being in a, in a male, literally being the only female, I, I felt that much on their level because it was like, I can't share this with these guys. They're not going to understand that. Um, so yeah, no, I, I do like that you brought that up because it's, it's, it doesn't, you know, it's not just a, oh, this only affects women and this is only, you know, especially with like the whole Me Too movement and all of that stuff, right? But it's everywhere. It is everywhere in every place, civilian, military, schools, young kids, adults. And it's, you know, it's for me, if, if like I said, if I only impact one person for them hearing my story and I help them in some way and I let them know that there's, there's other people, you know, I'm out here speaking for those people and and my job is done. You'll, you'll definitely impact more than one person, especially with your mindset and your strength from being a firefighter. I think you'll get more out there than what you, than what you think you will. Be, you will. Um, what, what is your coaching program called? Um, so it's Megan Trap Coaching, and that's um, so I do. I'm actually working on doing like a group group training too. I do one on one coaching, but it very much focuses on, like I said, for me, my 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 shift was, you know, I do like changing your daily routine so like you brought up like meditation it's a very holistic approach approach to you know timeline therapy the difference in the traditional therapy as opposed to nlp is you don't go in and like talk about the event and that's why it is so triggering for so many people where they're like i don't want to go to therapy or they feel like they just go and sit in therapy because they're just you know it's like okay you share how you feel and then the therapist's like all right see you next week you know it's like okay you know, you leave and you have all these emotions brought up and, and it's, it's not to discredit therapy at all because mental health absolutely has a place and a purpose. Um, but this is a different approach than traditional therapy of, okay, how do we heal in a faster time, um, by going and removing the negative emotions tied to that event, right? So it's, it's shifting your mindset and your perspective and it's using hypnosis and timeline therapy and hypnosis. You kind of go through like, like your life is a timeline and it's a lot more in depth than that. But Megan trap coaching is, is what I do and what I help impact people with. So. Well, how do, uh, and how do people get a hold of you? 
Um, so that's my Facebook page. They can look me up, um, Megan Trapp on, on regular Facebook as well to, you know, have all my, my Instagram handles and my LinkedIn and Twitter and all that stuff. Um, and it's, and it's, I can shoot you all that information over too as well. I think I did. I can't remember if I sent my. Yes. Yes. You, yeah. Uh, okay. If um, anything, <laughs> we'll get back with you. I was say my, my spelling is a little different on my first name, but yeah, anyone can reach me on, on my personal page, my, uh, Instagram, my, my Facebook business. I'm pretty much everywhere. So. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story. Um, you Things are looking really good for you. I, I like your coaching idea. I like that you're trying to bring more light to that besides just you know bringing the trauma. I think that's my biggest reason why I also don't want to go and do that anymore. I'm tired of bringing up the trauma. I want a different approach, and I'm glad that more veterans are coming up with these new ideas because crazy veterans, they know it works. <laughs> So, well, it's also why, you know, veterans are such great entrepreneurs, right? I mean, we know mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. I'll tell you, it is not easy when you start going into doing your own business. You have no idea. So it's like, oh my gosh, because you wear all the hats, right? <laughs> so it's like, but well, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today to another episode of the Swan Dango Files uh, with Megan Trapp. If you're ever in a fire and need somebody to save you, she'll come running. See y'all next time. Don't let the dango eat your baby. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Steven Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.